This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Welcome to Chapter Tactics, your 40k podcast which focuses on playing Warhammer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, PD Pob, the great and powerful PD Pob, as a, according to all the people who email me on a regular basis. Obviously, I'm just joking, but I do get a lot of emails from you guys telling me how awesome you like my, or how much you like my podcast, how awesome it is, etc., etc. Um, so I just wanted to give you guys a quick shout out at the beginning of the episode. If you email me, you're the best. Anyways, on to today's episode. Today we're going to be talking all tournament coverage, all tournament news. Um, there'll probably be a little bit of tactics towards the end, um, because with me I have the winner of the Bay Area Open, the repeat winner, two-time Bay Area Open champion, Brandon Grant. Thanks for having me, Pablo. No problem. Thank you for winning again. Uh, it was very easy to schedule this with you. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad. It all worked out. Yeah, it worked out great. I'm glad someone didn't come from England and win the BAO, and then I'd have to schedule an interview with them, and then you know, time zone, it's great. I have you right here local. It's, it's amazing. Uh, anyways, so Brandon Grant did win the Bay Area Open this year again. If you haven't heard, if you want to read a little bit more about the top eight lists um, and kind of supplement what we're going to be talking about, because we are going to be talking about the Bay Area Open, um, and I know Brandon has some things he wants to say about both his experience and the state of the meta, which is going to be some great stuff. So stay tuned for that. That'll be the main topic. Um, but you can follow along a little bit more on frontlinegaming.org, and you can just click on the BAO top eight lists. I talk a little bit about the players. Um, there aren't any lists. If you want to find the list, just go to the Best Coast Pairings player app. Um, the date for viewing the list has expired, so you do have to subscribe. Um, though I would like to say that the BCP guys have made my life easier, have made your guys' lives easier, and have made this game a lot better competitively um, just by making TO's lives a lot easier. Right? I know I used easier like three or four times, but it's true. Uh, the BCP guys, Best Coast Pairings guys, um, they put a lot of work into their app, um, and $5 a month is a small price to pay to have access to a huge list database. Um, I'm registered, obviously. Uh, so I would, you know, give that a look. You obviously don't have to give them you know, their money, but, um, you know, they put a lot of work into it, uh, and I, I think I think they deserve a little bit of payout for that, um, especially because what they're building is shaping the future of the game, uh, essentially. Uh, GW, they did, GW did use the BCP app at their event. Um, uh, how would not, uh, the big GW event that, like, just happened. <sighs> Warhammer World, I think, yes. Anyways, uh, and then uh, 
a lot of other tournaments are starting to switch over to it. Nova, War Games Con, obviously the Bay Area Open, all the large frontline gaming ITC events. Um, so I would just consider downloading that app and looking through it. If you're a TO, it's perfect. Uh, it pairs everything for you. Um, and then if you're a consumer of competitive 40K news, um, which you most likely are if you're listening to this podcast, it has lists on there, has uh, player results, and they're going to add a whole lot more features. It'll be like NFL.com style stats, right? So you have like player profiles, faction profiles, lists, uh, a bunch of stats, like what lists are beating what, et cetera, et cetera. So it should be, it should be great. It should be awesome. Um, so I would support them 100%. Anyways. That's where you can find the list, Best Coast Playerings, um, the BCP player app for iOS or Android. Moving on, uh, tournament news. We're going to just jump right into it. Uh, we had, we have one big, huge event going on right now, and that's the European Team Championships, the ETC event. So we're going to talk about that. Um, before that, we're I'd just like to talk about uh, War Games Con and Hammer of Wrath and Nova. There are three events that are going to be happening this month. Brandon and I will be attending Hammer of Wrath. Um, Brandon, you won last year. Uh, that I did. Yes. So I'm going to see if I can do a repeat performance there Nice. as well. Brandon's, Brandon's starting to heat up, guys. This is actually when Brandon started heating up last year, too. Uh, I believe you didn't do too well at the Broadside Bash last oh, year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in then... fact, uh, my uh, final round opponent in Broadside Bash last year was my first opponent at Barrio Open this time. Wow. So it was nice to have a repeat that ended differently because he beat me last time solidly. Oh, no. Well, yeah, that's no, that's great. Um, then obviously, so you know, you started strong at the Bay Area Open with the list that you and Mike Snyder created, uh, the uh, dreaded Wolf Star or uh, what did you guys call it? Uh, the Bark Bark Star. The Bark. The, the bark and star. the nice thing is, Pablo, I actually ran a pure Dark Angels list at last year's Bay Area Open. So I ran double Ravenwing bike squads and a battle company. Yes, and and wolves. <laughs> no wolves. Oh, there were no wolves. Okay. Oh yeah. No, you... those came later. Yeah, that was the Bay Area Open was the Dark Angels battle company list, um, and then you won the Hammer of Wrath with Wrath with the same list. Yes, exactly then, the same list. Right, and then you improved it, and you added the wolves and the priest and Azrael after that. And when you say improved, I'm not going to miss that list, honestly. It was um, it was a it was a good list, but it was a very very heinous list. Um, and it, I'm sure it made at least one person quit 40k seventh edition forever. I'm I sure. mean, a few of my teammates also had lists that were. Uh, one of them was nicknamed the Fluff Killer list. <laughs> it was magnificent, but. Moving into 8th edition, I'm so glad to have a reset of the metagame, and people are trying out all these new ideas, and it seems like the Death Star is buried for good, at least for now. So hopefully we can have some more games that are interactive instead of My Army is Unkillable. Oh yeah, we'll, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later um, when we get Brandon's state of the meta address. Um, but for now... War Games Con, Hammer of Wrath, Nova. Um, War Games Con is, event, is an event in Austin, Texas. Beautiful Austin, Texas. Heard it's a great city. It's going to be happening on the 18th through the 20th, so in two weeks. Um, this is going to be a, it's going to be a blast. It's going to be a lot of fun. They're, they're hoping to shoot for 96 players this year, which is crazy. They already have 64 people registered. 
Um, so I would probably get your tickets for that. It's going to fill up. It'll be a major. Um, War Games Con is kind of like a, they're, they're, they're like the summer, they're like one of the big summer tournaments, right? Because there's a bunch of big summer tournaments, um, and a lot of players go to War Games Con as part of their big tournament circuit. Um, Josh Death is gone. Uh, Jeff Robinson won last year. He was able to attend. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's always, it's in a good spot. It's right after the Bay Area Open, um, and it's right before Nova. So it's kind of it's kind of like a great major if you're practicing for a big event like Nova, for example, right? Or if you just came back from the Bay Area Open, you go straight to War Games Con to refine your list. Um, so it's definitely a top tier event for those of you who want to experience another large major before you start school or um, between B the Bay Area Open and Nova. If you're attending both of those and you need some more practice and you're in that area, uh, so check it out. War Games Con should be a lot of fun. Uh, Hammer of Wrath is going to be our West Coast event. Uh, it's going to be at Game Empire Pasadena. I will be there. Frankie will be there. Reese will be there. Uh, Brandon will be there. Oliver and Lenlisty will be there. All of the great players in San Diego um, that I've come to know and love, as as well as also the Northern California players and pretty much a lot of a lot of people in California. It's it's like the California big event. You know, obviously the SoCal Open is in October, so. It might not be the biggest event in California now, but I, I always saw the Hammer of Wrath as like one of the premier Southern Cal or the premier Southern California event, right? Well, it's definitely going to have some ridiculously hot competition this year. I'll tell you that. Yes. So it should be some great fun. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm super excited for that. Uh, Brandon, do you know what you're going to be bringing? You know, it's going to be right on the heels of Bay Area Open once again. So if I was a betting man, I'd say something extremely similar to what I brought to the Bay Area Open. Right. Well, of course, if, if, if it, you know, if it does well, repeat it, right? Well, don't change it. I'm not going to change it too much, but I've definitely learned a lot from the Bay Area Open, and I'm going to be making adjustments almost certainly. It's just a matter of which direction I'm heading in. And eh, if you're listening to this podcast and you get to the end of it, you're probably going to have a a few ideas on which direction I might be going based on my thoughts on the meta. All right. Um, I, I will be bringing my Nova list. Uh, I'm still trying to keep it secret a little bit. Uh, there are a few people who already kind of know what I'm bringing, um, but I don't, I've, I've in general tried to keep it hidden in secret. Um, it's not like, it's not like it's a big secret. Um, it's not like I have some hidden technology. Uh, I just, I kind of want to, I kind of want to like, announce it like at nova because i'm going to the nova invitational um so for those of you who don't know uh who haven't been to nova or don't know how nova runs um their, their tournaments uh there's the nova open which is the their large flagship 40k events big it's a great event um and then there's the nova invitational which is the event that happens before the nova open uh they what they do is they invite top players from all over the world to come and they play in a 16-man single elimination bracket tournament um, the players are all seated, or it's a 30, I'm sorry, it's 32 people. Uh, is it 32 or 16? I feel like it's, I should know this. I think it's, I think it's 32 people. Because 32 people is five rounds. It might be 16. I don't know. Gosh, I should know this. I, I've, anyways, so they invite, they invite either 16 or 32 people to, to go to the Nova event. Mike Brand is listening to this and he's gonna, he's like, come on, Pablo, it's like this every year. I've covered the Nova Invitational. I should know this off the top of my head. Anyways, uh, you're doing just fine. <laughs> um, they they invite top players and then they get 
uh, community leaders and TOs to rank those players from best to worst. Um, so, you know, number one seed would be someone like Nick Nanavati, who's won Nova a bunch of times, um, Adepticon winner. You know, and then 16th seed might be someone like me, right? Someone who, who has no major wins to their name, um, who's not generally regarded as the best player ever. Uh, so I might be like lower seed. So, um, you know, I, I would end up playing someone really, someone higher up. So they, they pair them like NFL playoff style where the higher seeds play the lowest seeds and then it kind of dwindles down and uh, evens out from there. Um, so if you're more middle, you're more middle seeded, you're going to play someone who's a little bit more your level, quote unquote. Um, but if you're like the last seed, you'll play the number one seed, who's probably uh, a multiple tournament winning player. So you'll have your work cut out for you. And uh, typically, typically the top five seeds usually do really well in the Invitational. Usually don't lose very many games. Um, usually at least win at least one game, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, should be a lot of fun. Um, I'm very, very happy to have been invited. I will cover it and um, they will also be live streaming it as well. So if you guys want to check that out, uh, Frankie and Reese will also be going. It should be a lot of fun. It should be a blast. Um, so keep posted for that. And then obviously I will do a podcast episode on the whole Nova event, uh, the Nova Open, which I will be playing in. Uh, I believe Frankie's playing in Age of Sigmar and I think Reese is also playing in Age of Sigmar. Um, though I might be mistaken. Um, so should be a blast. And if you've never, if you're listening to this podcast and you've never been to Nova, um, hopefully I'll sell you to it and you can go there next year. All right. ETC. Brandon, do you know what the ETC is? It's the European Tournament Circuit. Yes, it is. It's the European, I, is, European Team Championships is always what I've thought, but European Tournament Circuit also makes sense too. Because um, they are kind of like, ITC's, you know, Eastern cousin, right? Or European well, cousin. Yes, and from talking to people like Matt Root, it's an extremely competitive event. Yes. And from what I know, they play raw book rules. There's no modifications whatsoever to the game. And as a result, you're going to see some very crazy lists at the event. And yeah, that is absolutely 100% true. Uh, the ETC has traditionally been... Uh, as pure raw as you can possibly get. So, uh, for example, last seventh edition, you saw like three Wraith Knight lists, right? Um, you saw unkillable Death Star lists across the board. Uh, and this year, it's no exception. Um, this year, the flavor of the month is Storm Raven spam list. Um, whether you're Grey Knight Storm Raven spam, Blood Angel Storm Raven spam, or Space Marine Storm Raven spam, um, you will be running one of those lists. Uh, there's Brimstone Horror spam, uh, Razorwing Flock spam, because I believe they're going po pre-FAQ, so uh, Raisin Wing Flock should be really strong still. Uh, and then obviously Conscript Spam, which uh, Brandon is very, very familiar with. So it, it's it's generally, not only are, are you allowed to bring uncomped, really hyper-competitive, these crazy, like, cheesy spam lists, uh, but also the ETC is a team tournament. Um, and that team format, format lends itself to hyper- hyper competitive extreme examples of lists right so so like it, it's it's kind of it's kind of like they're playing rock paper scissors games but they're rigging the system so uh when you, you you're essentially there's like a mini game of pairing players off right so you're trying to get players their optimal uh their optimal um pairings or their optimal matchups so that that player can maximize their points and win you know win the game and hopefully win the whole team match right for your team 
So when you when you have that rock paper scissors matchup, you you want the biggest rock you can have, the biggest scissors and the biggest paper. So when they you know match up against their their rock to their scissors, the rock will just smash the poor scissors player to the ground. If that makes any sense. Uh, basically, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And there's a bit of metagaming as well, because if you throw a player forward for your opposing team to match, you can be guaranteed that they're probably going to throw their rock at your scissors. So in that case, the players you throw forward need to have lists that can handle their counter and still do okay. So you have this weird list building phase where you have lists that are ultimately built to the finest, sharpest edge to counter a certain build that you throw at someone and then you have the list you throw forward and try to not get countered as heavily as possible. So there's, there's kind of a cool metagame just in the uh, list building and pairings phase before you even get models on the table. Yeah. So what you're referring to are defender lists. So there's attacker lists and defender lists. Uh, attacker lists are lists that are designed to, they, they are designed to play someone and beat them, play that matchup and beat it or maybe multiple matchups. And that, that, that's, all they do. They are designed to beat, like, I'm going to be a list that beats Razoring Flocks, Conscripts, and Brimstones every time, without fail. I don't want to see Corn Berserker spam, you know, or I don't want to see, like, a billion Storm Boys or whatever, like these other matchups. So you try to protect those lists because those are your Glass Cannon lists. Those are the lists that you don't want playing certain matchups, but they are guaranteed to beat other matchups. Um, then on the flip side, you have Defender lists, um, which are generally more. Uh, well-rounded lists that play to the mission. They're really durable. They have a lot of really weak, unique, weird, unique things. Maybe reserve manipulation. Um, the like, like a battle company, for example, was a, a list of a, a good defender list last year. Um, when I ran in the team tournament with Matt Root and Brett Perkins, I had a defender-style list that ran thirty warp spiders and a battle company. And my entire purpose, uh, I, I theoretically, I didn't actually have to do this. Actually, uh, I did pretty well um, in the team tournament. But uh, theoretically, my list was supposed to survive and give my opponent as the least amount of points possible um, so that they didn't, you know, if they played with a glass cannon list, which is, as you were referring to, um, if you put up a list, you're going to basically play your counter, right? So the defender list has to take the counter, give them the least amount of points scored, and then maybe do well themselves. Uh, so it's, it's very, very intricate. They're eight-person lists. Um, it's a lot of fun. I've always wanted to go to ETC, um, but moving on to the results, currently there are two days going on as of recording this, recording this on Saturday. Uh, it is a three-day, or I'm pretty sure it's a three-day event, six rounds, um, so Sunday hasn't been ha hasn't happened yet, so there's only four games in, in the books right now. Um, currently, number one, you have France, the only undefeated team in the whole tournament. Uh, they, they brought, you know, of course, a bunch of nasty lists. They had a really close game um, with with uh, the U.S. It was uh, both both teams had uh, four wins and four losses, um, and it came down to like a margin of like six points, right, or something crazy. I think it was like eighty-two to seventy-six. Uh, but it was France barely won that game, which is which is good for the U.S. because Team France is a really good team. They're amazing. Um, and then they they're playing Team England right now who are three and one in the second seed currently um and they barely lost to poland um just just absolutely barely and that's why they're three and i'm sorry not poland wales sorry um and team england is also a really good team they have alex harrison who won the lvo two years ago um i don't know anyone else on their team 
I think Dan Bates, his name sounds very familiar. Um, but uh, obviously they have a solid team. Obviously they have a, a lot of great players. Um, they're Team England. Uh, so they are 3-1, and one, and they're actually playing France round five tomorrow, which is which is very, very exciting. Um, those are two very good teams, uh, and they might be playing to see who wins the whole thing. Uh, and then Team America, who you guys you guys definitely want to know about. They are 2-2, two and two, unfortunately. Uh, they won their first two rounds day one uh, against Romania and Denmark. Uh, and then they, like I mentioned earlier, they lost barely to France. It uh, looked like a very close game. Um, and then they lost pretty decidedly to Team England. Um, and I think that's pretty much eliminating them from contention for winning the entire thing. Uh, if they win out and go 4-2... and two, They'll probably make the top four, uh, which, you know, depending on the battle points, um, which would be pretty cool. They made the top four. Um, so hopefully, still reading for Team USA, hopefully they make the top four. Uh, players who were undefeated. Uh, let me look. Let's see. Sean Naden has won all his games. Um, and then Andrew Gagno, the team captain, also won all of his games as well. So I think, let me just triple check here. Uh, and then Nick's like Nick Nanavati also won all three of his games. So three veteran players that have been to the ETC before, uh, Sean Naden, Nick Nanavati, and Andrew Gagno, all of them have are currently 4-0, uh, which just goes to show that no matter the format, um, no matter the edition, uh, no, no matter the meta, you, you know, whether like, like Eldar or Bad or et cetera, et cetera, the top players are always going to do really well. Just... Brandon Grant, you're living proof of that, right? So, you you, you know, you, this is a new edition. Um, you're running a completely different style of army that you ran last BAO. Um, a completely different faction, a pure faction. Um, and you, you won. You went 6-0 and and you did well. Um, so, just, if you if you listen to this podcast, I, I do like to focus on tactics and, um, you know, list building and, and kind of just, I, I like to go beyond the simple, like, oh, well, you brought a broken you this broken unit and that's why you won um because that is not the case right if that was the case and the list you brought basically decided what kind of player you were or how good you were um you wouldn't see these same people repeating doing well consistently across multiple formats and multiple editions over and over and over and over again right like you would see these just by sheer randomness right uh if everyone brought the same broken list hypothetically and if that's all you needed to win you you know mathematically statistically you would have different people appearing in those top eights consistent of consistent players right um because if hypothetically sean naden if he ran just the the broken op list of the day or flavor of the month list um you wouldn't always see him doing so well right because other people run the same list and one of them would get lucky and beat him right which isn't the case at all sean naden's a phenomenal player so that's just uh something something I always get a little passionate about. Um, so Andrew Ganyu, Sean Naden, Nick Nanavati, they've all been to so, uh, at least two ETCs. Um, they all did really well. Uh, Brad Chester, Matt Root, Brad Townsend, Tyler Moose DeVries, and Matt Shuckman um, all have losses to their names, and that makes up the rest of Team USA. Uh, it's a very, very talented team. What can I say? They all flew in there early. Um, they, I imagine, they got some practice games in, and hopefully they do well tomorrow. I th- let's see, they're playing. 
I'm going to check pairings real quick, and then we'll get going to the BAO. Uh, they are playing Wales. Wales, who is also 2-2, two and two, um, who barely beat, or barely lost, or yeah, barely beat Team England. Um, so Wales is a solid team. And they lost to Germany, the last year's champions. Um, so we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully Team America pull it out. Go Team USA. USA, USA. No, Brandon didn't start chanting with me. No, <laughs> I think that I don't need to chant for them to do very well. Just looking at that team comp, they've got everything that they need to win. That's absolutely true. Um, so, moving on to the Bay Area Open. Uh, the Bay Area Open this past week, did did it happen? 130 players ended up showing up out of 150 registered, um, which is good. It's great. Uh and that is also the reason why I didn't have a podcast last episode. I was uh, really busy get, both getting ready for the Bay Area Open um, and then obviously attending the Bay Area Open, which is a four-day break for us, essentially. We leave Friday, early Friday morning, and then we don't come back until late Monday. Oh, excuse me, I just hiccuped. Uh, so, uh, essentially, the Bay Area Open um, it was the first real large singles event of the new 8th edition, right? Um, I believe it was the first event over 100 players. Um, there were a lot of, there were some other events that happened for 8th edition. Um, I don't think any of them broke 100 players. Um, there was obviously the ETC, or ATC event, which probably, which most definitely did break 100 players, um, but that was a team event, which is a little different. Um, so if you want to look at the ATC results um, and look at that in one way, that is a representation of the meta in that sense, but the Bay Area Open is a representation of the West Coast singles tournament meta, right? Yeah, not only that, Pablo, but as uh, a lot of people on Facebook knew, uh, the week before the Bay Area Open, there was a FAQ that was launched that definitely altered the metagame right before the Bay Area Open in a way that the lists that were viable at ATC were not necessarily viable anymore at the Bay Area Open. So yes. right now we're still in a state of flux with 8th edition. The new edition is only just over a month old at the moment. And uh, expect to see a lot of change in the lists over time. So even the lists that are doing very well at the Barrier Open don't, may not necessarily exist in the next few months. We'll have to see what Games Workshop comes up with. No, you're, and you're absolutely correct. Uh, for example, the Grey Knight Codex and the Chaos Space Marine Codex is going up for pre-order today uh this weekend right and so those i i've uh, just judging by what gw has shown us so far um those codexes are going to shake up the meta for sure 100 percent of the space marine codex is really powerful those stratagems bring a unique tactical flavor to the game that i really enjoy um obviously the relics being all free uh means people are going to take them always instead of you know some relics being too highly costed um it, it Basically, armies are going to get more intricate now, now with their codexes, um, and that means that list design is going to be a little harder, um, which means that list building will be a little bit more of a factor in determining who the best players are. Um, and on top of that, you're going to have different flavors of lists. Uh, those stratagems, 
especially the ones that affect unique units. Um, for example, the Tremor shells in the Space Marine Codex, a Thunderfire Cannon can shoot at something and half its, all of its movement period by spending the command points if it just hits the, the unit. That's, that's huge. That, that can, if you have a list that needs to slow something down, maybe you have a hard time dealing with knights, right? You need to slow down a knight. Um, or maybe your list doesn't have quite enough punch to beat like a berserker spam list or maybe you're really worried about magnus right you don't want magnus to get in your face so quickly turn one etc etc um that might be really good right so you might bring a thunderfire cannon just for that command point or just for that stratagem just to use that um because it fits your list so well even though you have some you have like a, a really weird list like an assault oriented list right that normally wouldn't want a Thunderfire Cannon. Um, so it's going to be those little additions. And that's not just for Space Marines. That's that's going to be uh, 40k wide, right? All of the I imagine all of the factions are going to have those unique little flavorful stratagems that really like uh, add a tool or element to your army that wasn't there before. Um, so it, it's going to be it's going to be a lot more diverse. The top eight this year was already really diverse. Uh, there were seven seven different different seven different factions in the top eight yeah not only that pablo but going back over my games i never played the same faction twice yes that is true that's good that's really good um and i i saw a lot of a lot of people brought the, their same list that they brought last year the bay area open so like for example ben vaughn last year he was a top knight player um he did really well with knights last year this year brought his same same knights did the same, did reasonably well placed about the same um which is great uh, you you want to see people bringing their same armies across multiple editions and doing well with them um and, and the cool thing is is that there were a lot of people who who didn't who brought their brought their armies that they brought last year and did reasonably well about the same um but there were a lot of people like orc players who came out of the woodwork and you know they did extremely well like michael fox and uh, John the Cool, two two orc players that uh, two really good orc players, who brought really good orc lists and were in contention to make the top eight or win the whole thing. In John the Cool's case, right? That that's crazy. Last year there were no orc players in the top eight. Orc players. As a matter of fact, I don't even think people like took orcs seriously last year. Right? Yeah, the closest we got to that was Matt Root's converted army, but that was run as Adeptus Mechanicus. <laughs> War, War Convocation Adeptus Mechanicus. Uh, speaking of which, didn't do super well this year. Um, it's kind of a shame, but uh, I think people are still trying to figure them out, um, and when more codexes come out, or when their codex comes out, obviously, you, I think they'll be a lot stronger. They're an army that needs a little bit more help, um, but they're still a really good army. They're, they still have... And... All those Mechanicum players out there shouldn't lose hope. I've seen some ridiculous combos with Mechanicum already. Um, even if the Bay Area Open didn't provide a good representation of what the army can do, uh, there's definitely a lot of potential for that army still. So oh, yeah. it's still room to be creative and have a good time. Yeah, especially when um, GW is, is doing a great job of being responsive to fixing stuff. Um, so if if and when I, I, I'm going to make a bold prediction now. Uh, if and when the brimstone horrors uh, problem gets addressed in one way or another, don't know if it will. Don't know. Don't I don't know anything about that personally. Um, but if and when I predict it does happen, uh, Castellan robots are probably going to get a lot better, um, and more armies like Admec and Pure Gene Sealer Colt um, will be able to compete a little bit more, right? Because right now armies aren't having the problem of being able to deal with knights because every faction can deal with knights now 
Um, or like even like Gilliman and Space Marines and even Storm Raven spam. Like every army has a acts or answers to those things. Um, what armies don't have answers to are Brimstone Horrors. Perfect example, Harlequins. Harlequins are, are a great elite MSU army, very killy. Um, but if you put Harlequins up against Brimstones and challenge them to beat and kill 500 Brimstones, they just don't put out enough shots efficiently, right? Because they're still very expensive points-wise compared to the Brimstone Horrors who are just cheap with the 4-up invuln, right? Uh, so it, there's just there's certain armies that can't deal with, brimsto can't deal with Brimstones at all. Um, which which is unfortunate. So hopefully, GW, I'm begging you, please do something. GW, you're my only hope. Um, they're definitely giving armies better tools to deal with brimstones, and um, I think there are some Eldari flavored units that aren't Holoquins that you can ally in that might help at this time. But I understand your pain if you're trying to be a pure Holoquin player and deal with a horde of brimstones or conscripts. It can be frustrating at times. So. Hoping that good options present themselves going forward, and the codexes are definitely going to be an opportunity for that. Yes. So let's talk about the. Let's talk about your final. Let's well. Let's talk about all your games, right? So you obviously you won the whole event. Um, if you guys want to go to our Facebook page, Frontline Gaming, um, look at our videos that we have posted up there. You can actually see uh, one of Brandon's games that were live streamed, the finals game uh, between him and Paul McKelvey, uh, which we'll talk about. Um, and then you can also go in there and see other games as well. Uh, I, I have, I believe, four up there, either four or five. Um, so just go to Frontline Gaming or Facebook slash Frontline Gaming if you want to look at that. Uh, anyways, Brandon, so tell me about the games you played. So maybe it'd be easier to explain how my list functioned so it's easier to understand what I was dealing with across the table. Sure. So... Looking at the ATC results, seeing the state of the game before the Bay Area Open, I was deeply concerned about a few concepts. One is the Alpha Strike list, where it's the kind of list where if you go second, then you lose, is the theme. And ATC was able to abuse that because they had the I deploy before you go first mechanic, which is essentially a guaranteed first turn when it's a team tournament and you're throwing um, a counter list forward and you know you have fewer drops than your opponent, so it leads to some abusive situations, let's call it that. Um, maybe that's fine for a team tournament. Didn't have to worry about that for BAO because no matter how many drops you had, there was still a chance that you could go first or second. But regardless, you still can't rely on going first to win the game. So if you face an alpha strike list and there's a chance that you're going to go second against it, you have to build a plan or a list ahead of time that you don't just automatically lose. And uh, I think the commentators on day one were going around and saying that there were a lot of games that were finished on turn one. And that's a symptom of the power of 8th edition where you can be in combat turn one, uh, you can have rerolls to hit and wound across your Space Marine army with Devastators and Storm Ravens and other very powerful offensive units. So if you go second against that list and there's a good chance you'll be tabled, then you're probably not going to win the Barry Open. So to get around that, you must build a list that will have models on the table after the Alpha Strike and, more importantly, have models that you need to finish the game. Not necessarily to table your opponent, but at least to stand a chance of winning. I'm not saying that 
going second against an alpha strike is a good idea, but you can't just automatically lose. So when we talk about my list, it did have 120 conscripts. It did have numerous drops. So I was almost always uh, at a minus one to roll to go first. Um, but it was built for durability of what things started on the table. So, for example, um, I wasn't really worried about volcano cannons or anything that was extremely high strength because my toughest model was a self-propelled basilisk, which is toughness 7 with 11 wounds and a 3-up save. So if you're really an army that's spamming that kind of weapon, I'm not too worried about it. Also, a lot of my guns are indirect fire, so I can deploy them as far away from you as possible in an attempt to not be tabled turn 1. And then if you're trying to alpha strike me from melee, I can put 60 conscripts in a bubble around 60 conscripts in a bubble around all my fire support. So the intention is you're not going to table me turn one. I am going to play the game out. I'll have a chance if I go second. Um, so all of that said, I was also relying heavily on deep striking scions with plasma guns. Uh, they're all around a solid choice in terms of they can shoot and hurt most things in the game pretty efficiently. There's an argument to be made for melta guns, but I chose not to include them this time simply to save on points. Um, so the list is if I go second, I don't auto lose. Um, very tough list to table turn one and very strong drops with plasma guns to deal with an alpha strike which means that if I'm dealing with someone who has a horde, I need anti-infantry firepower. Conscripts are pretty good at that. So are the Toroxes with Gatling cannons and hotshot volley guns. So the whole list is intended to work together to deal with every kind of list that's out there. Anyway, enough explanation jumping into the games. So like I said earlier, my first opponent was uh, Alex Gonzalez, who was playing Necrons. And the last time I played him, he kicked my ass at the Barry Open, or the not the Barry Open, the Broadside Bash last year. So good on him. He is an excellent commander of Necrons, knows them inside and out. And his list was a mechanized Necron list, uh, including a Catacomb Command Barge. Uh, he had the little um, artillery pieces with the Death Rays. Uh, he had a couple of Doomsday Arcs, uh, all mechanized list, and then a squad of Death Marks and a squad of Tesla Mortals for flavor. Um, unfortunately for him, even though he did go first, um, his army is pretty short-ranged, and he brought in deep-striking, teleporting artillery with Death Rays, but they didn't do that much damage to my army and he deployed them rather aggressively. So I was able to tie them up in melee with conscripts. And at the end of the game, um, all the plasma drops did a significant amount of damage to his list, including killing the death marks that killed one of the scion squads as they dropped in. Um, and he didn't have enough to clear off the objectives on the last turn. So I was able to take it. Um, Game two, I felt kind of bad about. You actually streamed that one, Pablo. That was against uh, John Fjorhelm. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, John. You um, are, yeah. He is a really cool guy, and he got tabled by bottom of turn four because he was running four Imperial Knights, and Imperial Knights do not like Scion Plasma Drops, nor do they like Conscript Walls, and they don't like being... All of that plus going second against plasma drops and artillery. 
Um, turn one, he lost one and a half nights. Turn two, he lost one night. Turn three, he lost one night. And turn four, I picked up the spare. So I don't really feel like my list has that much of a problem with four nights. And for all you night players out there, you should realize that uh, it's kind of hard to build a four night list, which is good against alpha striking plasma guns coming out of deep strike. So if you are going to run knights, keep in mind that that's a list concept that you might see. And I'll be very interested to see what you guys come up with in terms of support for your knights so that they're less vulnerable to that kind of attack. Um, and then I finished out the game by, uh, or the day on day one by playing Andrew Ford, who was running Harlequins this time. He was notable last year for allowing me to actually win the Bay Area Open because he had played Matt Root on top table, and he was beating Matt Root pretty soundly by the look of it. I didn't actually see the game, but what I heard was that he had a uh, Warp Hunter scatter onto his own Wraith Knight and, and kill it, it yeah. to tie the game. Uh, yeah, close enough. Um, it was, uh, I believe it was a Vol's Wrath support battery, um, but basically, because uh, I, I was there watching the top four last year's BAO, um, and I predicted that you would win um, as a Dark Horse candidate because there were three undefeated players. Um, and Reese and Frankie called me crazy. They were like, no, he's not going to win. Like, it's it's going to be either Matt Root or Andrew Ford. And I was like, nope, they're going to tie, and Brandon's going to pull it out somehow, beat Matt Shuckman, who's a phenomenal player, by the way. He's on Team USA. Um, and it worked, and I didn't think it would. I was I was kind of just, you know, talking out my ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually... thank you for your false confidence, Pablo. <laughs> right. <laughs> of course. I, of course, this year... I picked you to win, um, except I picked Eldari to win the whole thing, so that's also not true. But um, the minute the minute I saw you go five and zero, I was like, okay, this is probably Brandon Grant's tournament to to lose uh, when you beat Doug. And we'll get to Doug. Doug's list was terrifying. Yes. Um, but yeah, Andrew Ford was running um, the new Harlequins with the. Um, God of the Dead special rules, so they had Soul Burst, and it was several squads of Harlequins in their transports, plus the Forge World jetpack guys that are anti-tank or flamer with jump pack moves and are at minus one to be hit at all times. I forget their names, but they're really a cool model, um, and they do a lot for... Uh, having a very small squad size. And then he also had two of the Wraith Fighters, both of which had Conceal. Uh, and then he had a couple of characters that were the special Yanari characters. Um, he, he got to go first. I failed to seize, or no, I think he seized on me. I chose to go first and he seized. Um, but either way, he went first. And he threw everything he had at my front wall. And it's important to note that the deployment on this map was corner to corner. And I literally had a solid wall of conscripts between him and the rest of my army. They were in base to base. So he threw everything he had into the army. He did quite a bit of damage, actually. Um, it was a respectable amount of damage turn one. But the highlight of turn one was he charged two different times with the Harlequins because he got to do the disembark move move again power with two different units so that's a really good combination to watch out for one harlequin unit um took a couple casualties and killed about a dozen conscripts as they r ran in the other one i interrupted his combat flow and 
rolled hot and killed all of the Harlequins before they could swing at the other conscript squad. So that was kind of a sign of things to come. The other highlight was that he tried to cast Conceal, and I was able to deny it. Uh, so his army was not at an adept minus two across the board to be hit. And then the Scion Plasma Drops came in, and his army kind of got picked up at the bottom of one. So I don't think Andrew had much fun on that game, but it was very illuminating for me. Like you said, Harlequins are an assassinate, like uh, elite MSU-type army, and they ran into a wall of bodies and bounced. So that was a hard game. Um, so going into day two, my first opponent of the day was actually my teammate, Aaron Hayden, and he was running a very interesting list. He was abusing Brimstones plus the Changeling plus Magnus plus two Gun Knights, one with double Gatling, one with double Battle Cannon, plus two giant Chaos Spawn, the Forge World ones with Mark of Nurgle, uh, plus uh, seven or eight Sorcerers also renegade sorcerers they're 30 points and they smite at full strength yeah, that's all he was looking for are insane well, real quick let me let me pause before you move on um this is actually in the bay area open when we switched over to nova missions um which are completely different than itc missions on itc missions uh there's a set deployment uh set uh, objectives there's maelstrom um i don't i don't want to say it well it is it's simpler it's simpler than nova missions um, everything's laid out for you, uh, whereas the Nova missions becomes a lot more player focused in that the player gets to make the decisions. They get to pick which pri which of two primary missions they want to play, and they're always either you score at the end of the game or you score progressive missions um, on the primary objective markers. Um, they're all basically to that nature, and then you have uh, you pick three out of eleven secondary missions. To pick, and they're all things. Those are where you, like your first blood, Lionbreaker, Warlord, uh, etc., etc., are. But they add a lot more. There's there's like kill sixty models, kill three units in a single turn, uh, you know, kill your enemy's warlord, get first strike, get first blood, um, big game hunter, etc. So there's a there's a lot of different options. Um, and then finally, there's the butcher's bill, which is uh, if you kill a single unit every single turn after turn two, after turn one. Uh, you get a single point, right? So you don't have to kill. You don't. Have, you won't get like 20 points if you kill 20 units. Um, but you do need to consistently kill at least one unit every turn to get one point, up to a maximum of I believe it's four. And the thing I'll note about all those missions, Pablo, is that the ITC nerf or change to who goes first tends to favor armies that have more units to drop. That's absolutely true, but all of the Nova secondary and tertiary missions are much easier to achieve against armies with high numbers of drops. Oh, yeah. Uh, you can pick things like kill five units that are 100 or more points. Uh, against an MSU list, that's really not that hard when you just kill a five-man tactical squad with some special weapons and you get the point. Or there's First Strike, which is pretty easy to achieve when your opponent has a squad of five Toughness three models that you can kill for first strike and so on and so on so and i was running a fairly high drop count and in every nova mission i gave up full secondary and tertiary points so that's something to keep in mind when you're building a list and that i might be making adjustments for for the hammer of wrath tournament in terms of if you go too heavy in your number of drops the nova missions are absolutely going to punish you for that absolutely um that and that's actually a great point uh 
it, it, there was a balance, and and it's kind of a testament to you to you as a player. Don't don't let your head get big here. Um, that you did so well, you went going three and zero against three really hard opponents, um, and winning the whole thing with the Nova missions. Um, because you you gave like you said you gave up maximum. You basically gave up ten points to your opponent every single game. That's um, correct. Out of a possible nineteen, um, which means you had and and there was a there was a point. I believe Paul, no, not Paul. Uh, uh, actually, no, that was sorry. That was a completely different game. That was Adam Gotti versus uh, Dom, the demon player. Never mind. But uh, the you you basically you needed to win primary mission every game, and in some cases it was a lot harder for you to get your three right. Like I remember uh, against Paul, you got them all right away. Uh, but against Doug, I think you struggled for uh, the third one you picked. And there was yeah. one that you struggled on getting and i don't think you got it or you barely got it i barely got it right. uh, i picked line breaker but because i was going second against doug that was actually significantly easier to pick up yeah and you also deployed farther away that's what it was it was it, it was a line breaker at the end of the game you had to but move 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 to get it we'll get to doug's game in a moment his army is terrifying right, i did right. deploy almost as far away from him as possible right sorry sorry let's go to let's go to round four it's just a quick quick little thing spiel about nova missions go ahead brandon so i'll be quick about game four uh the brimstones are pretty much immune to shooting and combat so i killed about 20 of them over the course of the game um but i did manage to kill magnus because he flew out of range of the changeling during the first movement phase which was a big mistake to correct the mistake he attempted to cast um the move again chaos power on magnus and succeeded but i denied it so again i had a critical psychic power deny at a critical moment in which case all the scions arrived and magnus evaporated turn one so that was a big head start for myself um followed by both knights were dead by the bottom of turn three and the giant chaos spawns were also dead at the bottom of turn three so Pretty much at the end of the game, all he had left was a horde of brimstones and smiting sorcerers that had perils themselves and were now hitting like battle cannons and melee. But it wasn't enough at that point to push me off the objectives. Because um, this was the relic mission, and uh, Aaron had picked the progressive scoring mission, and I'd picked the end game mission. So I ended up holding one of his objectives, both of mine and the relic, for full primary points at the end of the game. And this was another one where I went second. But it didn't really matter because hammer and anvil deployment is actually very easy to be defensive with. So that was very helpful, actually. Um, so moving on to Doug's game. So Doug's army is definitely worth mentioning. Um, he was running Gilligan himself, as Doug put it. <laughs> and uh, he had a Storm Raven with all the fixings. Uh, he had a Vulture Punisher. He had 15 scouts with sniper rifles and camo cloaks. He had a Calexus Assassin. He had three Centurions with double Laz Cannon Hurricane Bolters. He had a Librarian with a Jump Pack and a Power Sword. Or maybe an Axe, but a Power Weapon. Um, and he had 40 Conscripts and a Lord Commissar. So two squads of 20 Conscripts and a Commissar. And he had an Earthshaker Battery. So his list with Gulliman had oh and an apothecary i can't forget the apothecary that was very important so you, his list get the librarian too 
The librarian with the jump pack, yes. Yes, okay, cool. Yeah, it was a, a hodgepodge of Imperium goodness. It was. Um, it wasn't exactly cherry-picking too heavily. There was still a theme of Ultramarines over most of it, but uh, in typical Doug fashion, the conscripts do their job of blocking deep strike drops turn one, which is fantastic. Uh, Goemon buffs all of his shooting so that he hits much harder than he really should be on a per-unit basis, and if you try and charge him, Goemon's a beat stick. He's going to kill whatever he touches. So you can't even use psychic powers against him very effectively because the Kulexis shuts that right down. So it was a really solid list. I'm not surprised that he was able to finish 5-1. and one. Um, That game was another one where I ended up going second against Doug. It mattered less because we had corner-to-corner deployment. So again, I was able to pre-measure where his Storm Raven full of Centurions was and deploy all of the conscripts an inch out of range of Hurricane Bolters from the Centurions turn one, which was crucial because rerolling hits and wounds with that many Bolter shots turn one, it really takes a, a big dip into your army total at that point. Um, so Doug made two movement mistakes turn one that really cost him. One was he put most of the Centurions behind a wall and forgot that walls don't have windows at the Bay Area open on the first level. So that was bad. Um, and his second mistake was because I deployed so defensively, the Storm Raven had to be very aggressive to get in range with the Hurricane Bolters. And admittedly, it killed 30 conscripts almost by itself turn one. Um, so that thing is scary as heck. Um, but the problem was that my plasma drops came in and killed it. It was one of my secondary objectives as a marked unit. Um, and then the game became pretty back and forth with the scout snipers absorbing an unholy amount of shooting. Um, the Centurions absorbing all of the artillery every turn, the entire game, and getting resurrected by Apothecaries and fully healed by the Apothecary. Um, it just turned into a grinder match at that point, but my list ended up being slightly more efficient than his, and I was able to push him off the majority of the objectives for the scouring at the end of the game. So Doug got a maximum win, or maximum loss, rather. He actually had more than 10 points, but you're only allowed to get 10 points for a loss, so... It was yeah. a well-fought game, but that opening deployment was super critical for me in having a chance after going second against that kind of list, because his list, going second against it, it's not the most Alpha Strike list, but it hits extremely hard. It's a crazy list. He actually, we live-streamed, if you want to see that list, um, we live-streamed him playing Jeff in Control Robinson. Um, that was the round four, I believe, um, and that was... That was another close game. Basically, it looked like Jeff was going to win because he had everything in Doug's face turn one, um, killed all his conscripts, and then Doug brought all of his shooting to bear and nearly tabled Jeff. But it was Yeah, a... that's exactly yeah, was... what Doug's list is designed to do, yep. is all of the conscripts die, but they don't matter because you are now tabled by being in rapid-fire range of all those hurricane bolters. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's a brutal list. All right. Game six. This this game. Uh, now, before you talk about this, Brandon Grant, uh, I want to um, kind of put a little header in this. There was a little bit of controversy uh, about this this uh, game. Uh, it didn't go the full time limit, um, though. I would like to say that turn one, as Brandon will talk about, mattered the most. And I would say that this isn't a true representation of lists being slow. Um, this was just both players putting the time and mentality, all their mental thought processing 
into the most important turns. Um, and then the uh, as as Brandon, I'm sure, will explain, the outcome probably would have been the same even if it had gone on seven turns. At that, um, point, from, from my perspective. Anyways, Brandon, go ahead and talk about it. Okay, so to set up this match, um, Paul McKelvey's list is insanely good, in my opinion. Um, it might not be the most optimal list. Mine's not the opt- most optimal list either. But if you're a Tau player and you're thinking about what Tau can do, you should study Paul McKelvey's list. Um, it's got the commander elements where you've got commanders with three or four guns, deep striking with drones. But he connects so many drones to so many different units and they all deep strike or advance together with the commanders that, well, combine that with homing beacons on stealth suits, and you have a recipe for turn one, he is sniped. Well, if everything goes according to plan, Paul will snipe all your most important units turn one because you can't block two of his suits because of homing beacons, and he will charge you turn one and attempt to tie up a unit that would have been bubble wrap, but is actually now preventing you from shooting him, which... We'll get to that in a moment, but it's a really solid game plan, absolutely terrifying list. So the thing that also made this game more interesting is we were on the worst deployment type against an Alpha Strike list. So we were on the one where you're deploying 15 inches away from your edge in the center and 6 inches in at the edges, which gives you the least amount of space to bubble wrap your army. So, yeah, getting... Paired up against an Alpha Strike list, and that deployment type is bad, number one. Number two, we were on a table where there were no pieces of terrain that provided a cover save except one, and it wasn't in either of the deployment zones. And the line of sight blocking terrain was not L-shaped for the most part. It was circular, which means that it was extremely hard to hide every single molecule of your unit from enemy shooting, because in 8th edition, if you can see any part of the enemy model, you can shoot them at full effect for the most part. So going up against Paul McKelvey's list with the terrain and the mission and the deployment type, I was already thinking, this isn't good. Um, And unfortunately for Paul, uh, even though I finished deploying after him, I did win the roll-off and chose to go first, and he failed to seize, which is why everything after that point really didn't matter anymore, unfortunately. So ideally you want it so that if one player goes first, it doesn't really change the outcome of the game. But in this case, because of the deployment type, because Paul's list type, because Paul deployed aggressively to uh, damage my list as much as possible, anticipating going first, um, turn one took me, I think, 50 minutes, someone was saying. But at the end of that turn, the only model he had left on the table was a devilfish. Yes. So the fun thing was Paul took his time he got 50 minutes of turn one as well, and he did a hell of a lot of damage to my list because the things that were in that Devilfish combined with all of his reserves wiped out one squad of conscripts, wiped out most of the rest of a unit of conscripts, and tied them up in such a way that they couldn't flee, so he was locked with flyer units and melee, and he had a swarm of drones around all his commanders after blowing up a great deal of my uh, Toroxes and mortars so that my return fire was reduced but I still had Scions in reserve, and that was enough for me to cinch the game. Um, Reese ended up telling us to hurry up at about the bottom of turn two. I think I took a 10-minute turn. Paul took uh, another turn as well, and at the bottom of three, we still had enough time for a turn four if we went fast, 
but both of us were comfortable calling it there because we could see that it was a foregone conclusion. After turn three, Paul didn't have enough anti-infantry to clear objectives of conscripts anymore, and um, it was just going to be a decline for him from then on. So that was the kind of game where I really liked the design of his list. Um, I would definitely have something to say about the deployment type versus Alpha Strike being critical, uh, the terrain on the map being critical, and whoever went first in that matchup as a result being extremely critical, which is kind of unfortunate. I don't like saying that, yeah, I won because of a die roll and I rolled higher. Um, but partially that was what happened on the last game of BAO for me. Um, thinking about it, if Paul had gone first, it would have been, let's say, a closer game, and Paul definitely could have won, but I think I still would have had a chance. I um, agree. That's what I'll say about that. Yeah, because Paul, cause Paul is still, I still would have to deal with a lot of conscripts, um, and I don't think he had enough shooting to kill all your Toroxes and all your Basilisks, um, and then you still would have had your Scions dropping down. Uh, so it, it definitely would have been a completely different game if Paul had gone first. Um, it was a very good game. I, I thought I thought the Paul charging and blocking the conscript, locking the conscript squad so you couldn't escape, and leaving basically one conscript alive so that the commissar just killed one conscript and they couldn't flee. I thought that or uh, get die for morale. I thought that was masterfully done. Um, and yeah, it was just it was a really fun game. It was a good top table. Um, unfortunately, didn't go to a turn seven, you know, or turn six last die roll epic end conclusion um but that doesn't mean that it wasn't a good competitive game uh moving on so before we go on to commercial break and to brandon's state of the meta address uh i just want to talk about things i learned at the bao um i obviously didn't play in it i to'd it with recent frankie uh, but there were some general consistencies throughout the whole game and I, I, I watched you know a lot of competitive games i talked to a lot of people um and and they're just here's just I just wrote down some things that I learned at the BAO. Um, so first, command point management is a huge skill that you need to learn to do well. Um, a lot of the times, I and don't fall for this, guys. This is some tactics, some above the tabletop mental tactics that you need to condition yourself for. Um, opponents were asking their their uh, you know their opponent if they wanted to reroll a die right, for their command points, or you, you would ask them, like, how many command points they have on a critical time when they might need to roll it, uh, to kind of, like, bait them to making a mistake and re-rolling a die on a, and spending a command point that isn't necessarily necessary. Uh, perfect example of this is I saw a player, he, um, he finished shooting at a unit, right, um, and he had other things to shoot that unit, uh, but the last save eventually would have basically sent that unit so that it automatically died from due to uh, morale um so the guy asked him was like hey do you want to spend your command point on that on that unit and the guy was like yeah i think i will um rolled he made the save right uh and then the guy immediately shot and killed that unit with another with another unit that he hadn't fired with yet and he was like oh you basically just wasted a command point on a unit that was going to die anyways right when the player who re-rolled the die to save his unit could have instead said no forcing the other player's hand to maybe shoot at it again or if the other player thought that you know that was enough wasn't going to shoot at that anymore shoot at other things he could have spent two command points so that the unit automatically passed right which i think is a much more efficient use of your command points if that unit is as important as you think it is right so there was just a it, command points are a resource 
that you need to be able to use. And now more than ever, especially with the stratagems coming out, each army is going to have, you know, 20 or 30 stratagems that use command points that you have access to. Um, so you're going to need to optimize the use of those command points, right? Some armies will use command points, all their command points turn one and before the game starts, you know, either to set up like a brutal alpha strike um, or to set up kind of like their cool unique combo, right? With the, like the relic command point, like making a space spring captain, a chapter master or whatever, right? If, if they add more different stratagems to the codexes. Um, so command point, resource management is going to be very important um you're going to see a lot more lists with a lot more troops to maximize the amount of command points people get um and i th i think it'd be really cool to see certain lists that just revolve around command points and a cool unique little trick right uh so one one that i noticed that was kind of like like a baby you know synergy that that could be considered maybe a death star like a baby death star um but not really like my a land raider like, you could have a Land Raider like the Land Raider Terminus Ultra with the eight Laz Cannons. Um, Tigarius can give the Land Raider plus one toughness. Uh, and then with a Stratagem, you can give the Land Raider uh, it so it ignores mortal wounds on a five up. Uh, and then you can also give it minus one to hit with Tigarius. So it's, it has essentially the hard to hit rule, right? So that that's kind of like a little mini thing you can do to make a unit tougher. And then you're burning command points to make that unit survive longer, right? So it's not it's a lot harder to kill. And on top of that, Terminus Ultra is blowing things up with its last cannons, right? So it's just little little things like that are going to create uh, lists that people build around. So it's command point command point resource out, resource management is going to be very important. Uh, two, you need lots of terrain. That's you need lots of standardized terrain. Period. Like there, you know, there were some games that were flat out ruined uh, because, you know, we uh, the Bay Area Open had a lot of great terrain, um, but you need more terrain than before. And obviously, we didn't plan on, you know, one year advance. Uh, we didn't plan on getting all this terrain for the Bay Area Open, right? Like, you, and we can't be the only ones, right? There's TOs all over the place that are probably scrambling to put more terrain on their board. Um, but if you're a TO and you're listening to this podcast, get more terrain on your board. Like, just like stick like a big wall in the middle, right? Or something um, The you know, doesn't always have to look pretty. Um, obviously, if you can make it look pretty, you go ahead and do it. But I think in this case, practicality might overrule the rule of cool. Um, and uh, just, you, you need lots of terrain. Games are, games are being decided very quickly. Um, shooting is very powerful. Uh, and terrain is something you need to be able to deal with. Um, all right, uh, three, um, which is kind of kind of stepping on Brandon's uh, toes a little bit with his subject, uh, but uh, living or dying by the first turn is a real thing. Um, that's what I wrote down here, and what I mean by that is lists. A lot of people are building lists that live or die by the first turn. That's that's it. Like they they're they're not necessarily alpha strike lists, um, though that is kind of the definition of an alpha strike list. Um, but a lot of people are building lists with the first turn in mind, um, and it's it's showing, right? Be because of that inexperience, because of that inexperience in list building, uh, a lot of people are, you know, assuming that they have a low enough drop count to get that plus one, and they'll get to go first, and they just assume, I guess, naturally that they're going to go first every turn, which obviously in ITC isn't, isn't the case at all, and any of the big tournaments, because Nova adopted the same thing, right? Uh, the automatic first turn uh, in the GW core rule set um, if you're not playing with that, uh, it's 
you know, it's very hard to predict if you're going to go first or not. Um, so you shouldn't build lists to go first. As you said, Brandon, you need to be able to build lists that take the first punch, um, that don't rely on going first every time, and can survive a first turn shooting Alpha Strike. Um, and a lot of people's lists can't do that. Um, so if you hear complaints, uh, not just from the BAO, but complaints about 8th edition in general, um, about, uh, oh, whoever rolls the die good to go first wins, um, that's, I think it's less... I think it's less the uh, way the game is designed and more lack of terrain and lack of people's ability to design proper lists to go first or to be able to not go first. Yeah, um, Pablo, I couldn't agree more. And that was exactly what I was going to open with was the importance of line of sight blocking terrain and the importance of building a list where if you go second against an alpha strike army, you do not automatically lose. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Brandon. I'll let you expand on that a little bit more. I'll move on to number four. Uh, number four, uh, bubble wrapping and deployment is something people need to learn. Um, that's that's very self-explanatory. Uh, bubble wrapping, there, there's we'll have we have to have a bubble wrapping episode now. Um, but there, there's bubble wrapping is an art, and what bubble wrapping is, if if you if you're unfamiliar with the term, it's essentially creating a unit, a, a wall of, of expendable units that you don't care about, surrounding all your good units that you don't want to die, uh, to push your opponent out to stop them from being able to deep strike or charge the things that you want to protect. That's essentially it. Right. Um, th there's there's like there's certain levels. There's like bubble wrapping against uh, flyers that can fly over your bubble wrap. There's multiple layer bubble wrapping for things like corn berserkers that can tear through one single bubble wrap easily. Um, th you know, there's like three. How many layers of bubble wrap? Um, there's just like big, huge, huge deployment taking bubble wrap that isn't really like a line, but it's more of like a bunch one unit sped across in like zigzags to prevent. Uh, deep striking behind you right so there's like there's a ton of different ways you can protect your army um but the best way to do it is with a cheap uh expendable unit that you don't really care about um and that is kind of the reason why conscripts and brimstones are really popular as well because they not only can they fulfill the role of bubble wrapping and protecting your models but they can also fulfill the role of taking objectives um and just flat out killing things like conscripts conscripts can just flat out kill certain things because there's so many of them Right, so that's why they're really good and they're really versatile. Uh, five, guard are an army that you're going to see a lot of. A lot of. Um, uh, Space Marines were the number one faction, but right behind them were Imperial Guard. Like, like really close. So I think it was something like 40 to 25 or something. Like It was insane. They're, Imperial Guard were already a really popular army in 40k. Uh, them and Chaos. So the three most popular armies are Space Marines, Imperial Guard and Chaos. I don't think in that order. I think Space Marines are the most popular, clearly. Um, and I think Chaos, Space Marines, and Imperial Guard are the second and third most popular. Um, but my point is is that uh, Guard armies are extremely popular. Uh, I run the secondhand shop from Frontline Gaming. Um, so I do get to see a lot of like trends, uh, what people are buying, what people aren't buying. Um, and typically, on average, like a Harlequin model won't sell as fast as like an Imperial Guard tank, right? Or, or a better example, like a Necron Doom Scythe is, you know, at the same cost, the same, or the same cost to MSRP ratio, so like the same good deal. Uh, and, you know, the uh, primed, assembled, you know, beautifully assembled versus uh, a Lemon Russ battle tank of equal value, um, same 
you know, same everything else, the Luminous Battle Tank is going to sell faster every time, right? Even though they might be the exact same on the tabletop, right? This, they might be the exact same level of power on the tabletop. Uh, and that you can kind of just like count how many listings are on eBay. Like the most, there's the most listings. If you look up, if you like look up an eBay Space Marines 40k and you type that in, that's going to get the most results. Um, and then Chaos 40k or Chaos Space Marine 40k will get like the second most results. But right behind that is Imperial Guard 40k. So you're going to see a ton of guard is basically my point. Um, so prepare for that. Uh, conscripts, lemon russes, uh, artillery. You're going to see a lot of artillery. Um, drops, dropping scions is going to be something you're going to see a lot of. Uh, toroxes. Um, so just that's that's going to be a meta that you have to anticipate because guard are a powerhouse faction right now. They're they're easily one of the top three best factions. Uh, six knights fell off. Um, and tower strong, but not unbeatable. Uh, so basically what I meant by that is uh, knights, as predicted, they are the gatekeeper. Um, they are the big boogeyman of competitive 40k, uh, but they're all smoke and mirrors. Um, they're easy to counterplay. They're easy to design lists to beat. Um, and they can beat your list easily if you're not prepared to beat knights. Uh, but everyone's kind of has knights in, in the back of their mind when they're playing lists. Um, so as a result, knights aren't doing so well. Right, they just they don't do very well, um, which is as predicted. I expected knights to be a gatekeeper army that was really powerful, um, but I never expected knight lists to do extremely well uh, and win. And I actually don't think I saw a single three knight and Magnus list, which is kind of interesting because um, I expected to see a lot of or like three knights and Gilliman. I didn't see either of those lists, so I'm kind of weirded out by that. But uh, anyways, uh, and then Tau, um, they're they're kind of I feel personally feel like they were kind of relegated to last year's role and that they're like uh, the like gatekeeper army that people hate um but can never like make the top eight like they're always the bridesmaid and not the bride um and paul mckelvey obviously made the top table uh so m that might prove me wrong um so you can make an argument that that is indicative of you know tau being better and you might be right um but i i don't think tau are going to ever win a, like a big event right i think tower always going to be like just one step away um and they're always going to be a really good army and there's going to be really good tower players uh but i don't know if they have the in tool factions to take it to the next level um then again i don't know when they're what if their codex comes out and changes everything who knows right but currently I'm, right now no pablo normally i would agree with you but i have to give credit where credit is due there are some very good tower players oh, out there there's some so... extremely good tower players if anyone can make magic happen, it's those guys. So Paul McKelvey and uh, the rest of them. Holy cow! Like Gagne, it, it, Andrew Gagno. Andrew yeah, Gagno's up there too. Yeah. So if it if it weren't for them, maybe I'd agree with you. But those guys could make magic happen. If they choose to play Tau, then uh, watch out. They can still win tournaments. That's true. That's a very good point. Um, and no disrespect to those guys. Um, I'm talking about the Tau faction in general. Uh, number seven. There's a lot of faction diversity but not as much list diversity. Um, and what I mean by that is you see a lot of different factions. Like every faction was represented. Um, every faction was competitive. Um, but as I predicted earlier, when 8th edition first dropped, uh, there's, not, there's not a lot of list diversity. A lot of the factions are bringing the same things. Um, look at Michael Fox and John McCall. They both fought the Gargant Squigoth um, and a whole bunch of bodies, which, which makes perfect sense. That's how it works when. Right, um, you know, uh, the Tau lists all had several commanders, five, six plus commanders each, 
right? The guard armies all had a ton of conscripts and artilleries, right? Uh, the demon armies all had a lot of brimstone horrors um, and Magnus, right? With the exception of Ryan Mead's Nurgle demon army. Um, now, the thing about that, Pablo, is that Mitch Pelham's list, he had a Stormlord in his list. He did. And he had a command vehicle from Forge World, so he was buffing its ballistic skill up by one. And yes. he was buffing its armor save up by one. The Gargoyle, so, I think. I forgot what it's called. It's not the Salamander. It, it, I think it, it is. The Griffin? It, no. Uh, but it's the command vehicle that's yes. a Chimera chassis. So his list did have Scions, except he was running Elysians because they're more efficient. And he did have Conscripts. And he did have Yarrick, which are all things I had. And he did have Barrage artillery. Yes. <laughs> but not, and it wasn't an overwhelming number of artillery. You're it's right. just some. Yeah, right. But it was a totally different philosophy in terms of I went for more units and he went for I'm going to build a unit that's unkillable and just murders everything. So there still can be some tweaks where you get some variation. And I did see a lot of variation in lists to a certain degree. But I would agree that people tended to gravitate towards similar builds, such as the gargantuan um, squiggeth thing for orcs or for Tau Commander suits, or for Conscripts, or Brimstones. But otherwise, people were still being very creative at this point in the metagame. So it's not completely nailed down yet, but we're starting to see some of these dominant units appearing across the board. I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Now, now, um, for those of you who might be feeling argumentative or disagree with me, um, first off, uh, bring it on. I, I expect I don't expect you guys to agree with me all the time. I love... Uh, you know, arguing and debating um, and getting people's opinions. Uh, so for those of you who, who might disagree with me, uh, I'm not saying that every single list was like that. So not every orc list had like the Gargan Squigoth and lots of bodies. There was there was actually two orc flyer lists there that were pretty cool. There was um, one that I remember that had all orange flyers. It was it was kind of a cool list. Um, I don't know how well they did. I, I remember they didn't them not doing super well. Um, but the point is, is that there's, as Brandon said, there are going to be some outliers, some people with cool, unique lists, and those lists are actually just, they're just better. They're better than they were last edition in that they actually have a chance to compete. Um, but at the like higher level, or maybe not higher level, but in the majority, as I was walking around looking at everyone playing and looking at their lists and talking to them, uh, a lot of the same list concepts were true across multiple factions, right? So like Gilliman and mass shooting, right? Or uh, three knights, all of them having like battle cannon, Avenger Gatling gun, like crossboard, or like like brimstones and changeling, right? So the, there was a lot of those strong list concepts that that held true. Um, so uh, you're you're gonna see a lot of that. So basically, it makes it easier for you guys to prepare your lists when you guys go to tournaments like you guys you guys are if you guys see know that demons are going to be there expect to see changelings and brimstones right you might not see lists only running that um but you will have to have an answer to changelings and brimstones you will have to have an answer to killing something like a gargant swigoth or a knight or stormlord Uh, you will have to have an answer to conscripts you will have to have an answer to etc tau commander spam etc 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 um but you're also going to see a lot of faction diversity, which is cool. Uh, eight. Um, this one's going to be a bit controversial. Uh, brimstones may be the only things keeping Chaos Demons relevant. Um, 
as uh, so I'm not chaos in general, but just chaos demons specifically, uh, with the exception of of Ryan Mead and his Nurgle list with the with the cool Scabathrax, um, and you know like the cool beat demons. Uh, chaos demons are kind of in a bad spot right now in terms of uh, they they are now the uh, supplement to Chaos Space Marines and Renegades, right? So, like, Malefic Lords are really good. Magnus is really good. Um, Corn Berserkers are really good. There's a lot of good Forge World Chaos Space Marine stuff. Um, but other than Brimstones and the Changeling, Chaos Demons don't bring a whole lot to the table, right? So, like, last edition, you saw nothing but Pink, Hor Pink Heralds, Pink Heralds uh, you know, Screamer, Stars, um, uh, I guess Demon Prince spam is something that, that Chaos Demons kind of bring to the table, but I think the Chaos Space Marine Demon Princes, people use those as well. Um, so it's just, Chaos Demons are, are uh, a faction that may need a little bit of love, because uh, you definitely don't see a lot of like Nurglings, Plague Bearers, um, Slanesh obviously still isn't around. Uh, greater Demons are kind of, like there's no Bloodthirsters, no Lords of Change. Um, so Chaos Demons, as a faction by themselves, I just noticed that that without Brimstones and the Changeling, um, they might be like a lower tier faction, uh, which is, which might be completely untrue. Like, you know, there might be a Chaos Demon player that just wins Nova, right? Just with like a pure Chaos Demon list. And then, you know, I'm wrong. Oh, well, what else is new? Um, and then I just wanted to talk about two extremely close games. Uh, there was the Paul versus John McCool game, which was really good. Uh, that was uh, Paul and Paul McKelvey, the guy who played Brandon Grant. He beat John McCool and his 130 Storm Boys and a Gargant Swigoth and Gazgol and uh, an Orc with the banner. Um, really good Orc list. But Paul basically uh, dropped down and killed a ton of Storm Boys and then just out maneuvered John McCool and um, killed the Gargant Swigoth and spread him at the end. It was actually a real close, masterful game. And I, I wish I'd streamed it, but I didn't. Uh, and then finally, Adam Gotti versus Dom, uh, the demon player, Dom from Croatia. Uh, Adam Gotti, who I was rooting for the whole time, who, who lost to Mitch in the final round because um, I predicted Inari to win. Uh, Dom needed, or Adam needed like three things to go his way at the end. Uh, he needed to kill Magnus with the Incarn, ch char uh, use the strength from death on Magnus. Magnus's death to make an 11 inch charge into a unit to make him the third model and take that objective and then he needed his hemlock wraithfire wraithfighter to live through an entire turn of shooting and psychic phase with just one wound left um and all that happened and he won by like one point it was crazy uh so there's a lot of really fun close eighth edition games um i think in general I like where I like what the BAO showed me in terms of the meta, and I'm really excited to talk more about tournaments um, and the tournament scene in the future. Uh, especially the, now that I'm going to Hammer of Wrath, uh, War Games Con's coming up, the Nova, um, and then when I go to the Iron Halo in October, and the SoCal Open, which is also in October. Um, so it should be a really fun and interesting season. Brandon, is there anything you learned from the BAO? Yes. So there are a few themes. And I, I want to stick to themes rather than units because I get the sense that if you and I are discussing a unit and saying that it's a problem, that GW has gotten much better about addressing these things. It's very early in 8th edition. Who knows where any of these rules will be two months from now. So it's just important to keep in mind 
the units that are good today may not be the same units you're taking tomorrow for a super competitive list. With that said, the themes I've seen are things die really quickly in 8th edition. Yeah. So, um, especially with reroll mechanics, they're rarer than they used to be, but they're still out there. I mean, Goleman's the prime example of that. And when you combine that with 3-plus ballistic skill, it really doesn't matter if you have minus 1 to hit. You're still going to hit. Um, you're going to hit enough to take out units. So having rerolls in your army is super strong. Um, having minus-to-hit penalties counters armies that don't have rerolls to hit. Um, building your army so that you can go second and not be tabled. The importance of line-of-sight blocking terrain, especially for melee builds. There's a lot of units that uh, don't deep strike reserve. I guess it's not reserve from deep strike anymore, per se, but that, that just show up, that don't necessarily show up on the table, but are hyper-mobile. And if there is an L-shaped ruin in the center of the table for them to hide behind, I'm looking at you, Harlequins, <laughs> then um, they just get so much more ridiculous because... Yeah, you might have some indirect fire, but it's not going to be enough to significantly hurt an entire army that's out of line of sight. Or if you're going first with an alpha strike list, but your opponent can hide their good models behind terrain, that's much less damage potential that you have. So there's a lot going on in the list building phases right now. Like my list, I'm like, okay, I need bubble wrap so I don't get tabled, but then there's deployment zone types that totally make bubble wrap almost useless so having hard-hitting units that come out of reserve is nice so that even if i get alpha striked i have models left um having indirect fire is nice so that if someone does hide out of line of sight i can still poke them um but indirect fire tends to be less efficient so spamming it in not doing anything else is a bad idea um i don't know there's a lot of different variables going on and I'm curious to see where the meta is headed. But last thing I wanted to address was conscripts specifically. Um, I'm definitely not going to be taking 120 of them ever again. Um, in certain battles, I was actually leaving them on the movement trays that I carry them around in and just moving them around in square blocks because moving that many models and rolling that many dice is just impossible um, in a two-and-a-half-hour round. Um, but some suggestions I was just thinking of off the top of my head would be, what if the maximum squad size was reduced? Right now you can take 50 conscripts in one squad. What if you could only take 30 or 20 or 40? It would, it would be an improvement. Um, I'd also seen some discussions online about reducing spam. So what if in general you were only limited to taking three of the same unit, um, I know it still wouldn't apply in things like ETC, but it would seem to curb some of the biggest excesses in the game when you combine smaller unit sizes for some of these abusive hordes with caps on the number of units you can take. Um, I've also heard or thought of suggestions for reducing commissar effectiveness, and I'd be open to hearing anything about that, because without commissars, leadership for conscripts are not useful. Um, but I'm kind of not sure about a points increase for conscripts, um, especially compared to brimstones right now. I'm not sure what's going to happen with brimstones, but um, for three points a model and the amount of damage they do, it seems reasonable. It's just the right ability to take so many of them 
that your opponent can't even kill them. And honestly, there are some lists that I didn't face at the BAO that I'm terrified of and that would straight up laugh at 120 conscripts. So don't think that it's uncounterable, Pablo. There's counters. Um, But it's not that everyone has tools that can deal with that. So I don't know. To sum up, I'm really excited that 8th edition is introducing this new meta. I think that the game is in a state of flux, but everything is so fun. As in, there's so much potential for building an army that plays the way you would like it to, as long as you keep those rules in mind about you need terrain, you need to go second and still win, um, you need to have stuff that starts in reserve, preferably, or maybe is just extremely tough so that your opponent can't remove important things turn one, or at least all of your important things. Um, I'm just excited to see what the meta will bring, and uh, I was happy that I was able to play so many diverse armies at the BAO. That was kind of the point for me, is just, wow, 8th edition is here, let's see what everyone's doing. Right. No, that's good stuff. All right, so we're going to go ahead and go to commercial break, uh, and then... We'll come right back with Brandon's final thoughts and state of the meta address, state of the 8th edition meta address, uh, and that's it. Hey guys, welcome to PD Pob's Second Handies, the commercial segment about market trends and trade tips that I pick up from running Frontline Gaming's secondhand shop. Today we're going to talk about tournament models and their importance in the market. Uh, basically, if you are going to a big tournament uh, like the LVO, like Nova, like the Bay Area Open, make sure to buy your models earlier that you're going to be using. Um, for example, if Brimstone Horrors are the new hotness, guess what you're not going to find on eBay? Brimstone Horrors. Um, and if you're looking to sell your Brimstone Horrors, um, sell them right before a big tournament, preferably three-color painted. It's a great way to sell your models and move them quickly, as well as maybe possibly getting some good deals. Uh, so keep that in mind. Tournaments do affect market trends on the regular. Also, don't forget to head over to the thefrontlinegaming.org where there is a link to the secondhand shop where we commonly list secondhand 40k items at over 50% off MSRP. Thank you guys. This has been PD Pops Secondhand. And we're back. Uh, so, um, one of the reasons why I wanted guests on every week on this podcast uh, was to give you guys a variety of you know, uh, angles to the game and perspectives um, and thoughts from different people who come from different backgrounds on the game. Um, so I try to get like TOs, tournament winners, uh, community leaders, et cetera, et cetera, onto the game to talk about uh, their thoughts uh, on about 40k and uh, the competitive meta. Um, but I, I've haven't had the chance to get anyone to just talk about like the state of the meta, right? So Brandon had a, a lot of things he had to say about 8th edition, um, and we were talking at length about some of the things he would change and kind of just like a state of the meta. Um, and so I, I asked him if he wanted to be on the podcast so we could talk about it, uh, which he obviously accepted because you guys are listening to him now. Um, so Brandon, uh, what do you think about the 8th edition meta? Um, and would, why don't you give us your state of the 8th edition meta address? So I went over a little bit of the strategic side of things, but I feel like even with the ETC finding all these um, really strong combinations of lists, 
um, I don't think we've seen the end of list building just yet. So, for example, at the end of 7th, um, my list building began to feel a little stale, as in once I painted myself into a corner with a list build, there really wasn't anywhere else to go. Um, but right now, everything is so dynamic. Um, what I mean by that is you can think that you have the list that will beat all the other lists, and someone else is going to come up with something that will beat it. So, for example, um, some of the lists that I was terrified of, I, I hinted at this earlier, I didn't see at the Bay Area Open. And I don't want to go into those in detail, simply because there are people who are probably going to be bringing it to some future tournaments, so you'll definitely be seeing it anyway. But being aware of all these abilities that can be used, uh, the new abilities coming out in the codexes are amazing. I'll give you an example. The orbital bombardment ability that the Space Marine Captain or Chapter Master can use is absolutely insane against my army style. Um, for those who don't know, you pick a point on the table uh, when your Chapter Master or Captain doesn't move and you roll a d6. Every unit within that many inches of that point takes 3d3 mortal wounds on a 4+, plus, or on a 3+, plus if they're big enough, or on a 5+, plus if they're a character. So... You put that in the middle of a bubble-wrapped character um, like cluster, like guard tend to run, and you are going to be pulling some units off the table very quickly. So, for example, some great new abilities are coming out that are going to be countering builds that are currently viable. Um, and for those who want to be more competitive, I'm knowing that Pablo is probably going to be doing a technical section, or Frontline is going to be doing a more technical section, but... I will just say that the things you can do in the movement and charge phases are insane compared to what you can do in 7th edition. So pay very close attention to how models are moved, and you will be able to come up with some very uh, unique maneuvers that you can pull off. So for example, you can charge through in, uh, completely line-of-sight blocking terrain now, which means you can charge and not be overwatched with just a regular tactical squad, for example. So... I don't know. I'm very excited for 8th. I think we haven't seen everything that it has to offer right now. And my advice for anyone who's listening would be um, whatever army you're into, 8th edition right now, you can do a lot with it. You just have to figure it out. Uh, even just talking with people who are playing uh, Adeptus Mechanicus or Sisters of Battle, um, armies that you're not seeing in all the discussions at the Bay Area Open. These armies do have useful builds, ridiculously powerful builds. We're just not seeing them yet. They're out there. So keep thinking about how your army can play. Keep the core concepts in mind of don't lose if you go second. Use the terrain to your advantage. Use reserves to your advantage. And you might do very well. So wish you all luck. All right. Now, is there anything uh, negative about 8th edition that you think... Um, could be improved on in the future or or needs to be changed? Um, I would say that the focus on firepower being king is excellent compared to 7th edition, but if it goes too far, we end up in that if I go first, I win scenario. So it's balancing the ability to remove models easily from the table so you don't have Death Star situations uh, with the ability to move your models in such a way that they're less vulnerable to being removed, at least on the first turn. So if you can get that right, 
the game becomes this really cool dance between the armies not only deploying correctly and taking objectives correctly, but also bringing in reserves, using special abilities. I see the game heading in that direction. Right now, we're not there yet. We're close. Well said. The dance of... Uh... I almost said the song and fire. That's that's not Game of Thrones is tomorrow. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, is the the dance of 40k? Uh, yeah, that that's that's actually a really uh, elegant way to put it, Brandon. Um, you definitely are. There's definitely a lot of counterplay um, when you play two evenly matched armies um, that both have their codexes uh, that uh, that um, has a lot of terrain on the board. Um, and there's no spam. Uh, the, the objectives are are balanced to both armies, and there's definitely uh, an elegant dance form. I guess, I guess the way the what game is played um, that you're alluding to that I think is 100% true, um, which is great. I, I played. I probably had some of the most fun games I played in Eighth Edition, um, period, in 40k uh, versus Seventh Edition, where I had did have some fun close games uh but there were also just a lot of games that were just like flat out boring right so it, like some of the most boring games i played were like death stars versus my battle company and warp spiders <laughs> they were just like okay i can't hurt you you can't table me um let's just go through the motions you know it's kind of like they're you know the seventh edition games are kind of like a forced father-daughter dance at the wedding that was kind of like half planned um, and caught like one of them by surprise, where whereas like eighth edition games are like uh, semi choreographed dance that the groomsmen all found out that the groomsmen all planned um, to like a song that everyone loves, right? And the groomsmen also happen to be like okay dancers, like not like Magic Mike dancers, but like okay dancers, right? So this is very entertaining and fun. Um, that that but that that's kind of that's kind of like a uh, where I where I feel about eighth edition, I feel like eighth edition is a lot of fun, um, and it has a lot of potential. Like you said before, um, when those codexes come out, guys, uh, I can't say anything. I I am obviously I obviously cannot say uh, anything that that might get Frankie and Reese in trouble, um, but I do know that Frankie and Reese talk nonstop about how fun the game is going to be when the codex comes out. It's it's actually very frustrating um, because. They, they obviously can't tell me anything. Um, and if you think they tease you guys on the podcast, uh, you know, they, they tease us at the office even more, right? Um, but anyways, uh, the game is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Space Marine Codex, I was very, very happy with. I think in general, people were very happy with it. Uh, the Chaos Space Marine leaks, people were very, very happy with. Um, and though your army, your, your perfect, like your Iron Warriors army, might not be the most competitive and might not be the best army, um, there is enough internally within each faction to cater to every style that you want to play, uh, which I think is where we want to get to. Um, so it's really exciting times. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add, Brandon? Well, now you've got me all excited for these codexes. Now I can't wait for them. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, no, there, there's, there's, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of great stuff coming. Um, the the other cool thing is, um, and this is sorry, I, I'm I'm a little rambling a little bit here. Um, there's a lot of design space that stratagems open up um, because you can you can kind of make like these overpowered effects now uh, and not have to worry about the way they hurt the game because you have this limited resource and command points. Um, so 
if it is this really powerful effect, it's going to only happen once or twice, right? Um, and it's going to come at the cost of, of using things that you're never going to get back in command points, right? Um, so I, I'm really excited for that and see what kind of de design space that opens up. Um, because as Forge World has shown us, uh, when you start to create these like wonky, you know, unique, like flavorful, fluffy rules, um, they can sure they can be really cool. Uh, like if when you have things um, like the Land Raider or not the Land, the Whirlwind Scorpius that doesn't move when it doesn't move, it can shoot like twice, shoot its weapon twice. Or um, uh, what's what's a better example? There's there's some really good Forge World rules that that are like 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 Lys Isodon's ability to to infiltrate three units because he's like the Raptors chapter master and the Raptors are like the masters of infiltration. Um, you know, it's just, there's a lot of really cool fluffy rules in Forge World. Um, but when you start adding those rules and they start when going, when they go unchecked, um, they start to become, you know, either really silly and that they, they're never ever work on the tabletop as intended, uh, or they become really overpowered um, because you're focusing more on the narrative side of the rule instead of the actual, you know, functionality of the rule, right? And that, that all comes from from core game design philosophy and concepts, uh, and there's entire college classes devoted to that. Uh, and if you become really good at it, you could get a job at a big company like Wizards of the Coast designing, like, magic cards, right? So so game design and game theory uh, is something that I'm, I, I'm really happy to see GW jumping on the bandwagon of. Uh, and they've given themselves this great tool in stratagems um, to do that without any real long-term repercussions to the health of the game, which is which is fantastic, right? So now when they create like a narrative mission, um, instead of creating like this whole this whole book and this whole you know thing with these complicated deployment setups and blah blah blah, they can just create like a simpler deployment um, and then have these like command points that you use, right? Uh, it, it's just, it's great. It's, I can't, I'm super, super excited. Um, I kind of wish I could write my own faction in my own codex, uh, because I, I'm already thinking of all these cool ideas that you could come up with, uh, for, that, that could be stratagems that could be really cool and really fun. Um, so anyways, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, and also congratulations for winning the Bay Area Open again. Uh, hopefully next year when ninth edition drops, I'm just kidding, um, but uh, at the rate that GW went through editions, I wouldn't be super surprised. Um, but uh, you know, next year, hopefully, when all the codecs come out, the the meadow changes again. You do really well, um, and I wish good luck to you in the future. Are you are you going to shoot for ITC champion this year, Brandon, or are you just kind of along for the ride? Uh, I think I'm just enjoying the ride right now, Pablo. I'm not going to be doing the go to twelve events that are all majors. Right. Well, you could, maybe. I mean, I could, but um, I'm going to do what makes sense for me, and I'm just going to have a good time. All right. All right, Brandon. Well, thank you very much for coming on, buddy. Uh, and have a good one. All right. You too. Okay. All right, guys. And that's going to be the episode. Uh, I had to let Brandon go. He needed to go get some sleep because he had work early in the morning. Um, if you guys want to go to FrontlineGaming.org, I actually do have a blog on FrontlineGaming.org uh, with the show notes, with all the links that I talk about in the episodes. Um, so if you guys haven't gone to FrontlineGaming.org to look at the Chapter Tactics blog, um, you can also find my archive there as well of all my other past episodes. Um, you can also comment on there as well. I can interact with you. Uh, if you want to see my what my email actually looks like instead of me 
telling it out to you guys. Uh, by the way, it's frontlinegamingpdpab at gmail.com. Uh, you can email me. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm falling a little bit behind on my list answering. Unfortunately, there's, there's a lot. Reese warned me ahead of time that uh, there's a lot of people who, who ask for list critiques. Um, I didn't believe him, but I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on like 50 unread emails right now because of the Bay Area Open. Um, so I did fall a little bit behind, but please keep sending those emails. Um, if you have like a tournament coming up and I don't get to it in time, I do still respond. I just, you know, ask you how your tournament went. Um, you know, we, we, I have a lot of like back and forth emails talking about, uh, you know, what they could have done better at a tournament, um, how well they did, or if they did want to congratulate you. Um, there's also people... Uh, that live in you know rural parts of the world like like in China there's a guy who lives in, gentleman who lives in China um, who thanked me for for uh, the podcast there's a guy in Spain who's I believe also named Pablo um, who gave me some critique that that I took and hopefully hopefully I'll be able to fix the critiques that he mentioned in the future um, but it's it's we're building a community here um, and I really appreciate you guys. Uh, so just remember to go to frontlinegaming.org uh, so I can interact with you guys some more and you guys can look at the rest of the episodes if you like this episode or the idea of a competitive 40k podcast. Anyways, guys, thanks for listening. As always, have a good one.